Father, we've gathered in this place to worship you and to give you honor and praise and give you thanks. And in this season of Advent, we have every reason to do so. Lord, in this season of Advent, we are reminded of how the saints of old, how they waited. And they waited and waited over hundreds and thousands of years. They waited for your promises that you gave them to come to fruition. They waited with eager longing and expectation to see when it was that you would come through for them to deliver the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. And so you promised them through the seed of Eve that a conqueror over death, over Satan, over sin would come. You promised through the offspring of Abraham. You promised through Moses, a prophet like him. It was you who used Joshua and the judges in order to prepare your people for what it would look like for a conquering king to come, a redeemer. You promised to David that he would have a descendant who would sit on his throne forever over a kingdom that has no end. And so the people waited. And they longed for the day when the new covenant would come, where the indwelling Holy Spirit would circumcise our hearts and renew us. The ruler to be born, to be born in Bethlehem, the one of whom you had spoken so many times, the ruler over your people. And Lord, we sit here today no longer anticipating who that might be. We know his name is Jesus. He is the coming king. He is the one who is our Savior and our Redeemer, the one who is reconciling all things. He is the one who gives life, conquers death, gives forgiveness. And so, Lord, we, on this side of Jesus' first coming, we, like the saints of old, still wait because you have, met, you, you have yet made more promises that you will return. And so we long in eager anticipation for your return. For, for when you return, you will set up your kingdom in fullness and finality. You will put an end to death, an end to sin. No more crying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears. You will consummate your kingdom and we who believe in Jesus will reign with you forever and ever. So in this world we live, in this world we see brokenness and sin and destruction and death. And so we, like the saints who've gone before us, we cry out, come Lord Jesus, come. In this season of waiting and preparation, we continue to wait and continue to prepare. So Lord, be honored in what you see in and through our church as we are awaiting people, confident that you will come through for us. You will fulfill your promise. You will yet again return. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We thank you for the season and for all that it means for us. And we ask that you bless us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome, everyone. Good to see you all. My name is Phil, just in case you forgot who I was. I'm back. It's good to be with you all uh, Heather and I traveled with 100, over 100 people from our church to Israel and Jordan for the last three weeks, and 
man, we just had such a good time, and we got to see things that we um, just never expected to see. We got to be in places we never expected being in, and uh, it is already beginning to bear fruit for me anyways in reading the Bible, just having been there. So if you have an opportunity to go to Israel and Jordan, I encourage you to do so. Uh, it's really, really an insightful place. It's something that is helping me to understand and to read uh, the Bible more clearly. And so it's just uh, a wonderful time. I do want to thank, uh, thank a number of people because in my absence, we had some faithful men come and preach. And it was so encouraging to listen to them um, on my phone while we were traveling on the bus, listening to them preach. And I'm just so grateful for Jacob Broughton, who's who was preaching as a ministry partner through the book of Galatians, reminding us that we need to do good to everyone, especially the household of God. I was so grateful for that. I was especially grateful for Pastor Josh McCullers preaching through the end of Galatians and finishing that book strong. And just what a great reminder um, of the new creation and all that awaits us. And last week, Pastor Dennis DeFrady starting us off on a good foot uh, in this Advent series. And so I'm just really grateful. And it just reminds me yet again that the Lord has placed people who are faithful to him and are faithful with the ministry of the gospel all over planet earth and i'm just really grateful for that and so thankful to them when you came in you probably saw that there is a what we're calling a snow globe however it's rectangular in nature and we know that but uh we encourage you to go and take some pictures with family and friends and and go in there and throw the snow up and and post those pictures on your social media or wherever it is just to remind friends and family that um, you know, this is a great season for us to be filled with joy, filled with longing and hope. But it isn't because we're about to get stuff. It's because Jesus has come. And uh, just what a special time for that. So I encourage you to do that. Um, we do have coming up uh, on the 21st of December, our choir is uh, doing their annual Christmas performance. And so I'm going to encourage you to come on the 21st, which is a Friday night. And also on Christmas Eve at 2, 4, and 6 o'clock, we'll be having uh, those three presentations as well. And it's just a good time to be together and celebrate the Lord's coming at Christmas. And so I want to encourage you to invite friends, invite neighbors, invite whoever. And it'll just be a really good time. Um, I have to confess something to you real quick. I have not overcome the jet lag. I thought I would, honestly. I was like, yeah, I could do this. I'm young. Man. It's legit. No one told me. <laughs> and uh, I feel now, as I normally do at like 9 o'clock at night. And so anyways, I pray for you. <laughs> we'll be all right. We'll get through this. But anyways, um, I am grateful to be back. There was a number of things that we were able to do. Just a couple things I just want to highlight that um, about being in Israel that was so, so cool for Heather and I. One, one of the days we woke up while we were, uh, and we woke up right next to the Sea of Galilee. And so we went out there as the sun rose over the Galilean hills. And we just read the book of Mark out loud. And we were just reading about how Jesus was going back and forth over the Sea of Galilee, back and forth to these different towns, doing ministry and preaching the gospel. And I just cried. Like, here we are. <laughs> this is real. And uh, then another one that stood out to me is we were sitting on the southern steps where you go up to the temple, where the temple used to be. And they're the actual steps in first century uh, Jerusalem, the very steps where Jesus walked. We, we know for a fact without any doubt that that's exactly the steps that Jesus walked. And what the Jews used to do is they would take Psalm 119 and they would read a portion of Psalm 119. There, there's a big step and a little step. And so they would go to the big step and they would read out loud Psalm 119 and then they would pray and then they would go to the next big step and they would read the next section. And so I started at the bottom of the steps 
And I broke open my Bible and I read Psalm 119 on every one of those steps. And then the third thing, which was really, really cool, is uh, I got to preach in a little ancient town called Emmaus. And uh, in a 5th century basilica. And I don't know if you know anything about the ancient town of, of Emmaus, but Jesus encountered two disciples as he was walking the six miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And as he encountered these disciples, they invited him to their home. And he went there and he broke bread with them. He ate with them. And there he uh, illumined their minds to understand scripture and he revealed himself to them. I got to preach that exact story while in Emmaus, the ancient city of Emmaus. And I was like, even now I'm getting goosebumps. It was so cool. So the other thing, on a more comedic note that I learned is um, people are super impatient. <laughs> and this was like equally, you know, like, I don't know, I, I learned a lot. And, and this was a, a thing I learned. And let me give you an example. We're in Jerusalem. We're at this hotel with little itty-bitty elevators. I mean, like you could fit like five people in it. But for some reason, people from all over the world decided, no, we can fit six and our luggage. And so it was just an incredible experience. But my favorite thing was these elevators were not only small but slow. So we'd get done eating, and then people would walk over to the elevators and just put, keep pushing the button. And I, I never understood this. I was like, you know what, I'm not a genius or anything, but I'm pretty sure the elevator won't go, oh, man, they're really pushing it fast. I better hurry up. <laughs> and so they just sat there and, for so long, and then finally it's like, Bleh! And then they would leave and storm up the stairs and then just, you know, walk to their whatever, you know, floor they were on or whatever. But I thought it was so interesting because regardless of what country these people came from, they're speaking in all kinds of languages I never even heard before. They're just, blah, 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 and they're just going crazy. And then, blah, and then just, poof, right up the stairs. <laughs> and I'm thinking, I have no idea what they said, but I know exactly how they feel, you know. <laughs> and those who did speak English, same exact thing. Even Americans and stuff, oh, come on, and then they'd go up, and as soon as they go up the stairs, bing, and it would open up, <laughs> and I would just start dying laughing, and I'm like, man, this is so crazy. But my other favorite thing is we were on the eighth floor, and we were coming down to go have dinner and all that kind of stuff, and we, there was four elevators, and one of them was the Shabbat elevator, which is like the Sabbath elevator, and it stops at every floor and opens the door, and that's to keep the Jews from pushing the button because that would um, cause them to break the Sabbath. And so we got in this elevator knowing, okay, it's going to stop at every floor, no biggie. And so Heather and I are in it. We're like, it's cool. Well, I don't think everyone knew that. <laughs> so on the seventh floor, bing, opens up, people get in there, and they're, I mean, they're on a rush, right? Like I'm pretty sure like the world is about to end in at least a minute or something like that. They're just like, ah, and they get in and they're like, lobby, you know? And the doors close, and I'm, I'm just thinking, this is going to be a fantastic ride. <laughs> Level six, bing, opens up, no one's there, and people are like, why to stop? No one's even here. We got to go. And then <laughs> door closed, you know, that, that little thing, beep, beep, come on, come on, come on. And then level five, and I'm just going, <laughs> opens up, no one's even here. And they step out, who's, who's pushing the button, you know? <laughs> Get back in, level four, bing, oh, come on. You know? <laughs> I was dying. So when we got to the end, the guy was there. I, I, you know, I'm sorry if there's any uh, Germans here, but he was speaking German, and he was, his face was red, and that door opened to the lobby, and he's like <laughs> pulling his hand, blah, 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 and he was going crazy. And I just walked out, and I just thought to myself, man, some people are so impatient. <laughs>
But one of the things I learned so much from that experience is we as human beings, regardless of what country we live in or what language we speak, we are impatient people. And then I got to come home and preach about Advent, which is fundamentally a topic about waiting. Isn't that ironic? Isn't God hilarious? <laughs> and so, as Pastor Dennis taught us last week, Advent is a season in which we as Christians slow down and we remember that God is not slow in fulfilling his promises. He's faithful to fulfill his promises. And though it may seem slow to us, it's actually training us to patiently wait upon the goodness of the Lord. And so Advent is a season where we as Christians have a time to be countercultural. I'm not shocked when unbelievers don't want to celebrate the birth of Jesus. Like, that doesn't surprise me. What I am shocked, though, is those who do love Jesus, when they don't slow down to just appreciate and to meditate on and to patiently observe what the season means for us. That does shock me. So church, let's, let's slow down. And let's let this season just permeate us, wash over us. One of the things that is amazing about Advent, in my mind, is the fact that Christians for over 1,600 years have been practicing and observing Advent. We are joining with 16, at least 1,600 years of Christian practice to reserve the four weeks before Christmas as a time for us to slow down and to observe faith, hope, love, joy, and on Christmas, peace. It's just a great time. It's a great practice. And so we are joining our voices and our gatherings these four weeks with the saints all across the world but also the millions of saints that have walked before us over the last 1,600 plus years. How cool is that? That what we are doing is an ancient thing. So I'm going to read Isaiah 40. And I love helping people navigate Isaiah because that's Old Testament. We don't oftentimes spend a lot of time there. If you take your Bible and you break it in half, you'll probably find Psalms or Proverbs. And so I want you to make a right-hand turn from there. Navigate past Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs and you'll get to Isaiah and work your way to the big number 40. And when you get to Isaiah 40, we're going to read this and we see that this is, although on first look, it isn't a Christmas passage, so to speak, but it is an Advent passage. It is a passage about the reason why Jesus came and the promises of God fulfilled in his coming. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, 
for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. And so, Father, that is our prayer. That you would so reveal yourself in and through your word that we would leave this place with the unmistaking reality that we have beheld you. And in so doing, I pray that you would cause in our hearts a hope to fill us. And that hope that fills our hearts would cause us to be a people who will lift up fearlessly the great announcement of the good news of great joy that is for all the peoples in the town of David, Christ our Savior is born. So God, would you teach us now, and we'll give you thanks for what you do in Jesus' name, amen. Like I said, Advent season is a time of waiting and preparation. The people of old, the saints of old in the Old Testament, they had various promises that were given to them, and their life was characterized by faith, by just trusting that God's promises are going to come true. And they anchored that trust in the very character and nature of who God is. And so they believed, since God promised it and God cannot lie, then we will trust that the promises he gave us, he will come through with and he will accomplish them for us. And so there was a whole host of promises that God gave his people. And Pastor Dennis reminded us of the series of promises that are all linked together progressively over Scripture that that signify and alert us and prepare us for the coming of the Messiah. If you remember, when Adam and Eve took hold of the fruit in the garden, they should not have done that, but they did it anyways, and they no longer trusted God, and they acted out in disobedience. God came to them, and he cursed not only Adam and Eve for their actions, but he also cursed Satan for tempting Adam and Eve to do such a thing. And in the midst of that curse, God provided a hopeful promise In the midst of that dark moment in which God's judgment was being poured out upon Adam and Eve, there was a ray of hope and a ray of sunshine. God says this in Genesis 3.15, I will put my enmity, or I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. God is speaking directly to Satan, and he says, between you and your offspring, that is all those who are not God's people, Between you and your offspring and the woman and her offspring, which represents God's people, there will always be enmity. There will always be strife. But there's coming a day where there will be one born to the woman who will actually conquer you, Satan, will conquer the effects of sin, which is death, and will actually conquer and vanquish sin itself. But in the process of his victorious conquering, he will be bruised. In other words, there will be pain and suffering along the way. And so the nation of Israel took this promise and they clung to it all their lives. 
that one day God is going to come through for us and he's going to put an end to sin. He's going to put an end to death. He's going to conquer Satan and we will once again dwell with him in a paradise like Eden. And so they waited. And they waited. And then over time, God gave them other promises which kind of fleshed out this promise. God gave promise to Abraham that through his offspring, he will bless the nations. And after that, God raised up a man named Moses. And Moses led God's people and redeemed them out of Egypt, just like Exodus 19 says. But the whole time, the people of Israel were wondering to themselves, okay, we're waiting for the seed of the woman who will conquer Satan. Is it Abraham? It's not. Well, it's got to be Moses. He delivered us from bondage and slavery. But it wasn't Moses. He died at 120. But God promised a prophet like him would, would one day rise up and lead the people. And so they waited. And then God brought forth Joshua to lead the people in conquest of the land. And so surely it must be Joshua. His name, Yeshua, means Savior, salvation. But it wasn't Joshua. And then God raised up the judges. And another way to... To translate judges is, is deliverer, redeemer, and it wasn't any of the judges. And then God raised up a faithful man named David who would reign as a great king over a great kingdom, and surely they thought it was David. It had to be David. Remember, David conquered Goliath. Goliath was the warrior who represented a king whose name trans, translated means serpent king. And so Goliath comes out representing the serpent king and does battle with David, and David beats him, defeats him, cuts his head off. So surely David has to be the seed of the woman who is conquering sin and death and Satan itself, but it wasn't David. And so the people waited. And God once again raised up time and time again a prophet, and then another one, and then another one. And each of these prophets were telling the people, keep waiting, God will come through. There was the promise of the new covenant. There was the promise of the circumcision of the heart. There was the promise of being cleansed from our idolatry. There was the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. There was a promise. In Micah 5, 2, that one day, as God says, but you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. There's going to come a ruler from Bethlehem who has been spoken of from ancient times, and he's going to be the ruler over Israel, over God's people. And so the people waited, and they waited. What's characteristic of the people was that they constantly trusted God. They knew God was going to come through for them. We read this in Micah 7, 18 to 20. Who is God like you? pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance. He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And you see that last verse, verse 20. You will be faithful to Israel because of your steadfast love for Abraham. We are trusting in your word. We are trusting in your promise. And so we wait. And so we, on this side of Jesus' coming, we 
actually understand what the saints of old experienced. We know what they're going through. As they waited for the first coming of Jesus, for the coming of Messiah, the one who would fulfill the promises of God, we now on this side of Jesus' coming also wait. But what we're waiting for is not the first advent. Jesus has already been born. But what we're waiting for is the second advent. The word advent means to appear or to make oneself known. In Greek, it's the word parousia, which means the appearing or the presence or the coming. And so Advent is really the time in which we celebrate God's coming to us, both in the first Advent and also at some point in the second Advent. God will come. And so as the saints of old waited for Messiah to come the first time, we, as the New Covenant saints, we wait for Jesus to come the second time. Now, what exactly are we waiting for? Well, the people of old were waiting for a deliverer. They were waiting for the forgiveness of sins. They were waiting for the indwelling Holy Spirit. We don't wait for those things. We have those things. But what we're longing for is for God to fully and finally accomplish his redemption. He has begun the redemption in the coming of Christ. We can have forgiveness of sins and the indwelling Holy Spirit. We can be assured of eternal life. We can be made new again, and we can honor God, and we can love God and love our neighbors as we ought to. We can do all of these things, but we live in the midst of a world that has fallen and broken still. We still struggle with disease. We still struggle with death. We still struggle with sin. We still see injustice running rampant all over our world, and so we wait. We wait because God has made a promise when he returns, he will consummate his kingdom, and he will bring justice. God will bring with him the righteousness we all long for. And he will usher in his kingdom. And those of us who repent and believe the gospel, we will be raised victoriously and we will receive a body, the very, bo the very body that he promised we will receive called a resurrection or a glorified body. And we will dwell with Christ in the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. There is no more tears. There is no more pain. There is no more sorrow. There is no more death. All of those things have been vanquished and accomplished done away with and so we wait and so in this advent season brothers and sisters we're not just waiting for anything we're waiting for someone and this is a great season for us to remember how the saints of old waited for the first advent and we like them are continuing to wait but we wait for a second advent as first john chapter 3 verse 2 says beloved we are god's children now and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, when he advents, when he comes, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And so we wait and we hope. Philippians 3.20 says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior. We wait for a savior. The Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And so we wait. But do you notice what the Apostle John says? If we are waiting and we are hoping for Christ's second advent, if we're waiting for him to return, he says, everyone who thus hopes, everyone who hopes, who has this kind of hope, he purifies himself just as Christ is pure. And what that tells me is we don't waste our waiting. 
If we're waiting for the coming of Messiah again, if we're waiting for the second coming of Christ, then we don't waste our waiting. Instead, we get busy as we wait. And what we get busy doing is informed by what the hope we have in our hearts is. Let me say it differently. As John said in in 1 John 3, 2, whatever your hope is will determine or will shape the way that you live. Your lifestyle reflects what your ultimate hope and longing actually is. Let me say it differently in a way that you will remember. Your destination determines your preparation. Your destination determines your preparation. When Heather and I were preparing to go to Israel, we had to find out what, what kind of the, the, the topography was. I mean, how far are we going to walk and, and what kind of terrain is it? And that informed and it helped us prepare for what kind of shoes we should bring. And when we come to realize that much of Israel is a desert, then I started to realize, well, it would be nonsense for, for me to bring my surfboard. Because my destination determines my preparation. And if our destination as Christians is the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells, where there's no more pain, no more sorrow, no more tears, no more death, no more injustice, then that means while we wait for that day to come, we ought to prepare ourselves by being people who are pursuing righteousness and holiness and doing all that we can since we're going to a place where there is no injustice, that while we wait for that place, we work for there to be no injustice in this world. Do you see that? And since we are destined to go to a place where there is infinite and inexpressible and glorious joy, then what we ought to do while we wait for that is we are to labor well for the joy of all peoples. And the greatest joy of all peoples is none other than Jesus Christ. And so therefore, in light of our destination, while we wait, we prepare for his coming by proclaiming the Lord's coming and the joy that is to be ours at his appearing for in his presence there is fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore Psalm 16:11 So our destination determines our preparation in other words the hope we have in our hearts will shape the way in which we live Now, I had the pleasure yesterday of listening to Rebecca McLaughlin speak at Women's Extravaganza. I don't know if you ladies had a chance to go, but it was awesome. You probably wonder, how in the world did you do that? I was up in the sound booth. (laughs) Anyway, so I was there, and I was listening to her, and one of the things that she said, man, just got my mind racing. And what she said was this, a hope, the Christian hope is a hope that gets us through death. The Christian hope is a hope that gets us through death. And the reason why that stuck with me is I started to begin, I began to analyze, okay, when we talk about hope in our world and our culture today, 
you see it as the slogan of politicians and you hear it on churches and you hear it in, you know, like, uh, I don't know, just all kinds of stuff around our culture. You hear that word hope quite often. You know what I'm talking about? And then I begin to ask the question, okay, it's not just that we say the word hope, but I wonder what is implied in that word's usage. What are people communicating when they say the word hope? Is it a hope that is going to get us through death? Because I don't know if you know this or not, but the odds are against us forever living forever, like in these bodies. Last time I checked, I think it still holds true. One out of one people die. All right, I'm just checking. And what I'm noticing is most of the talk of hope in our culture today is not about a hope you can sink your teeth into and to really grasp to get you through death, which is inevitable for all of us. But instead, much of the talk and fervor about hope is merely how to make your life pleasant to death. Do you see the difference? And so you hear the whole hope kind of stuff. You can have your best life now. Get that promotion. You get that raise. You can get this. You can get that. Happy marriage, obedient kids. Man, if you just had that. And so all the hope is placed on all this stuff which will only get you to death. But then you start to realize the coming of Christ is not about us being comforted as we get to death. The Christian hope is that we are comforted to get through death. I want to get through death to the other side. And that is exactly what the Christian hope is. Here are the words that, the, that God gave the prophet Isaiah in order to comfort the people who were living in a broken and fallen world who were asking themselves the question, where is God? Are you going to do anything? And so God's, God gives the words to the prophet Isaiah. He says, comfort, comfort my people says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her. God tells Isaiah that he wants to ultimately comfort his people. And the manner in which God is going to comfort his people is through tenderness of speech. God is going to speak. And the tenderness with which he speaks is going to result in comfort. But what is he going to say? What can God say that will provide eternal comfort for his people? Three things, and it's all indicated by the word that. First, that her warfare is ended. The other word could be translated, warfare could be translated as hardship. What God says is her, meaning Jerusalem, that is a representation of God's people, her warfare is ended. Now, why that's significant is because the people at this time, this is around the time when the northern kingdom called Israel was acting a fool. They were disobedient. They were living in idolatry. God was sending prophet after prophet saying to them, you need to repent or else. And the people turned a blind eye and a deaf ear to God. They said, we don't need you. We got everything taken care of. Just back off. And so God said, all right, then what else is coming? And so he sent the people into exile. They were conquered in 722 B.C. by the Assyrians. 
And in the midst of that conquering and that exile, there was warfare. Men were being slayed left and right. Women were being raped. Kids were being dashed upon the rocks and killed. And so God says this with the aim of comforting his people. Your warfare or your affliction or your hardships is ended. Now, what a bizarre thing to say because he uses the present tense, is ended. And yet in the midst of what's going on in these people's lives, they're in the throes of hardship. How in the world can my hardship be ended if I'm still experiencing it? Duh. And I love that God doesn't use the future tense of your hardship will be ended, but he says now it's ended. How can that be? It's that way because God speaks it and he promises it. And when God speaks and promises, you can consider it as good as done. Because God's word never returns void. God always fulfills his promises. God's word stands forever. Nothing and no one can ever stop God from accomplishing what God wants to do. There is no other God before God. God is uppermost in God. Does that make sense? So he speaks to an afflicted people and says, I see you and I see all of the harm that has come upon you and I'm going to comfort you with these words. I'm making this declaration and promise. Your hardships is over. You can take it to the bank. That's, that's okay. I put a smile on my face. Second thing, that her iniquity is pardoned. Iniquity, the word for physical disobedience, acting out in a way you ought not to, he says, is pardoned. Not will be pardoned, but is pardoned. It's as good as done. Now, for a people who knew their sin intimately, because they had lost their land and gone into exile, none of them would have ever said what's heard of today, which is, oh, I don't believe in sin. I don't believe that people sin. Okay. You do lock your car, though, don't you? And so they would never say anything as ludicrous as that. But instead, what God does is he speaks tenderness to them, aiming for comfort by telling them, your sin is pardoned. It's forgiven. Thirdly, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. What God is saying through Isaiah is simply this, your sin is paid for, doubly so. Meaning, you have no reason to expect any further punishment for no other judgment is forthcoming. You have been bought and it's paid in full. You don't have to fear the wrath of God. You don't have to fear judgment. It's done. It's as good as done. Now, when you are in the throes of hardship and suffering, confronted by your sin regularly, and with the nagging and lingering feeling that judgment hangs over you, to hear the words of God tenderly spoken, it's ended. You're pardoned. Have no fear. How can this be possible? Verse 3 through 5. 
a voice cries. Notice an unidentified voice. It's just a voice. It cries, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Why would you prepare the way of the Lord? Because the Lord's coming. So prepare his way for his coming. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become plain and the rough places a plain, or become level in the rough places a plain. You may miss this metaphor, but having been in Jerusalem now, I understand what Isaiah is saying. If you go to Jerusalem, I just want to give you four, like a, a, a warning ahead of time. At no point will you ever be walking on anything flat, unless it's man-made. And even that, it always has like a little incline or decline. At all times, in all parts of the day, our group was either ascending or descending all the time. And when we went to this high lookout near Jericho where the Dead Sea is, and we could look to the left and we could see Jerusalem, we looked to the right and you saw Jericho and you see the road to Jericho, you know, the Good Samaritan story, and you see it, you realize, oh, that's just a gigantic cavernous valley right there, which is really just, it's like a thousand feet down. So if I want to go there, which is 3,500 feet above sea level, all the way down to there, which is 1,500 feet below sea level, that's a, that's a lot. And we're huffing and puffing around Round Valley. You know what I'm saying? And you start to realize, okay, what Isaiah is doing is he's getting into the minds of these people. Whenever you travel and wherever you travel, it is filled with adversity. Danger is looming difficulty is always upon you because you're either going up or down at some point. There's nothing flat and level. I'm a relatively young dude. At night, I'm sitting there. I didn't tell anybody this because it was embarrassing. But I'm like, my calves hurt. (laughs) Can we do no more stairs? But that's just the way it is. But if you notice, he's using this metaphor of high hills and low valleys, and he's saying, but when the Lord comes... The adversity that you experience metaphorically in the rising and and descending of all the topography and geography, all of that is going to be made level. And what Isaiah is saying is this, when God comes, all of the hardship and suffering is going to be done away with. And where there's highs and lows and treachery, God is going to smooth everything out and everything will be made new again. And using that series, those series of metaphors, Isaiah is painting a beautiful picture. When the Lord comes, he's going to do something. He's going to make life the way it ought to be. The second way that this comes about, this whole comfort, is the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, verse 5, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. So when the Lord comes, he will smooth everything over. And when the Lord comes, he will reveal his glory. Those two things are going to happen when the Lord comes to provide comfort for his people. And how can we be assured of this? How do we know that this is actually going to happen? Verse 6 through 8. A voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. (laughs) I love this. And so after hearing these tender, comforting words, 
knowing that the Lord's going to come reveal his glory. And you're thinking, man, I just want to know, I just want to be assured. Okay, you want to be assured? Okay, we'll start with this. You as a human being are like grass. You're going to die. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everything you've ever accomplished and all the things that you do, you know, the culture that you make and the wealth you accumulate and all this kind of stuff, all of that, the beauty of your life, it's like a flower. It's going to fade. What? What kind of good news, like, happiness is that? We live in a positive culture, right, where, where you think, like, oh, I only want to hear positive things. I don't want to hear about death. I don't want to hear about things being meaningless. I can't put that on a Hallmark greeting card. But God confronts us with this reality. You do need to realize and wake up to the fact that your life is not going to last forever in this world. Your life is fleeting. You're going to die. And as the book of Ecclesiastes asks, and then what will happen to all your stuff? So remember the question I asked is, what's my assurance? Well, my conclusion would be this. Your assurance is not in yourself. You have an expiration date. <laughs> your assurance can't be in other people. They have an expiration date. And your assurance can't be in your stuff because you don't get to take the stuff with you. So the grass withers and the flower fades. What kind of assurance and hope is that? Ah, verse 8. Yes, the grass withers. Yes, the flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. So what God does is he grants us assurance that he will comfort his people by ending their hardship, forgiving their sins, and delivering them from the wrath of God and the assurance that these promises are true isn't because we have kind of harnessed all of the self-positive thinking and self-talk that the pop psychologists of our day tell us we need to do. Instead, our assurance is rooted not in ourselves, but outside of ourselves, in God who never lies. He will do it. He has done it. And you can consider it as good as done. Now notice the response in verse 9. Go up on a high mountain, O Zion. Zion is always that metaphor for the eternal people of God. We will feast in the house of Zion. Mm. Herald of good news, lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem. Herald of good news, lift it up. Fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Do you notice the proper response for hearing these promises and being comforted by God's word? The proper response is to go to a high place and declare the good news, to declare it with strength, to declare it, proclaim it, herald it, shout it, scream it, fearlessly so. Behold your God. God has done it. God has promised. God has fulfilled. God is not only a promise maker, but he's a promise keeper. Declare it. You notice precisely what he didn't say? Go to the mountains and declare good advice. Do you notice that? 
Go to the mountains and tell people, look at all the good stuff God did. It could be yours if you only did this, 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 and this. Harness positive self-talk. Speak into existence what you want your dreams to be and then harness them. I hear this all the time from pulpits and I can't believe my ears. And yet it's not publishing good advice. Go and do this. Instead, he says, having heard all of what God has promised, go and declare it and declare good news. What's the difference between good advice and good news? Good advice says, go and do this. Good news says, look at what God has done. Believe this. Just believe it. Believe it. Trust it. So if our destination determines our preparation, and Isaiah writes, prepare the way of the Lord, what do we need to do in order to prepare ourselves? I always get asked the question, Phil, your sermons, they need more application. And and I'm going to push back a little bit, church, so here's, here's me being the pastor and saying things that may feel uncomfortable. Application comes in three ways. Behavioral, It comes in cognitive thinking, and then it comes thirdly in how you feel. So every time you leave from me preaching, I'm doing one of those three things, or maybe two, or maybe all. I'm going to convince you to behave a certain way, think a certain way, and feel a certain way, because that is what the Bible describes as application. So if I don't give you what to do, but I have taught you how to think, I have given you application. It's just it's good news application, not good advice application. In other words, I preach the gospel. <laughs> okay. So that, that was side note. So what should we do? Now you're like, I don't, I don't. What should we do to prepare the way for the Lord to come in the second advent? Here's the thing. John the Baptist has already prepared the way for God to come in his first coming. And so what we should do is we should look at what John the Baptist did and what God has said, and then we should say to ourselves, oh, I should go and do likewise. That makes sense? Remember that whole prepare the way, a voice cries out. We don't know who the voice is, but just a voice cries out, prepare the way of the Lord. We don't know who that is. And yet when we turn to the New Testament, here's what we read in, in Matthew chapter 3. In those days, that is the days of Jesus' birth, exodus to Egypt, and return to Nazareth. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. And this is what he was preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. So when we read in Isaiah 40, a voice cries, and we have no idea who that is, well, now we do. It was God preparing his people to hear the voice of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist was preparing the way for God to come. Now, how did John prepare for God to come? Well, you notice, he came preaching. And so what I say is this, the way in which John the Baptist prepared the world for Jesus' first coming is by proclamation, by proclamation. Now, what was it that he was proclaiming? 
Well, we see this in verse 2. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If you turn to Mark chapter 1, as we're introduced in Mark's gospel to the person of Jesus, Mark says, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John the Baptist was proclaiming that when Jesus came, that there would be forgiveness, which implies there would be deliverance from the wrath of God, which implies there would be an end to hardships, which produces comfort. Do you see it? Maybe you don't. That's okay. John chapter 1. And when we turn to John chapter 1, we see, once again, John the Baptist. And he is one baptizing. And one day, verse 29, he saw Jesus coming and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You see, Jesus was preaching in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. The time is at hand. It is fulfilled. Repent and believe the gospel. In other words, all of God's promises are now fulfilled because I've come, Jesus says. And because I'm here, repent and believe the gospel. That's what John preached. That's what Jesus preached. And John the Baptist was alerting the world, this is your God. This is Jesus who takes away the sin of the world. Now, if you remember in Isaiah chapter 40, it says in verse 5, the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And we see the word of our God will stand forever. And then we see at the end of verse 9, behold your God. So put this together. Behold your God. See his glory. For the word of the Lord has spoken. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. John 1, 29, and therefore, behold your you see it? The word which cannot fail became a man. And the word that cannot fail which became a man is Jesus, full of grace and truth, but also how we see God's glory. And we are to behold him, for he takes away the sins of the world. So how do we prepare our hearts? How do we prepare for God's second coming? Look at John the Baptist, I would say. He, proclaimed, or he, he prepared by proclamation. And his proclamation was not good advice, it was good news. Look what God has done, and therefore, repent and believe it. So if God has promised he's coming again, how do we prepare? Two things. Your hope or what your destination is determines your preparation. And so 
we prepare for the Lord's coming by being people who are holy and righteous, people who are advocating for justice and righteousness, people who are seeking through the gospel to introduce people to the fullest and greatest joy they've ever known. And then secondly, we prepare for the Lord's coming through proclamation. We speak, not the good advice of pop culture and pop psychology. We speak and proclaim the good news. Look what God has done. Proclaim good news of great joy that is for all the peoples. In the city of David, a child is born. Remember the people of old, while they waited, what they did is they constantly rehearsed the promises of God. So as we wait, church, I would say, let us constantly rehearse the gospel. And remember, God has promised he's coming back. God is not a liar. He will do it. He will return. And when he does, we will see him as he is. We will receive our glorious resurrected bodies. Sin and evil and Satan itself will be vanquished. And God will usher in the new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. And we can take this to the bank because God's word abides forever. So Father, it is right and good in this Advent season to pause and to slow down and to remember that the saints of old had to wait thousands of years for your promises to come true. Likewise, we may spend our entire lives waiting with eager anticipation and longing for your coming and never see it. And so I pray that in the midst of our waiting, you would help us to not be idle and to not waste our waiting, but instead you would compel us that since we are inheriting a kingdom which cannot spoil, rot, or fade, and because that's a place where righteousness dwells, that you would renew us, that we would become holy and righteous people, pursuing holiness, and that we will be proclaimers of the good news so that many people upon your good earth would come to know Jesus and in so doing receive that infinite joy that you have promised. And all of this would well up into your glory. And so we grant these things to you and to your sovereignty, and we ask you do it. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.